right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome some faces I haven't seen in a while, and welcome some faces that I haven't seen here at all. Visitors, if you're out there online, welcome all of you. I love the fact that it's springtime. I know it's not officially spring yet, but as soon as we start talking about Easter, it's spring in my mind. The days are getting longer. I just love it, and it just feels like there's a new a new life, a new enthusiasm, and we start talking about kicking off our Easter series next weekend. Man, it's here. It's real. And despite all of the naysayers, life continues, and we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. So um, again, welcome to all of you. If you're brand new here, maybe haven't been in a while or something, I, I want to apologize up front for the way that we teach. And I call myself a teacher, not a preacher. Because my job, I feel, is to take the Word of God and make it make sense. I'm not qualified to add to what the Word of God is. I'm not qualified to add things that maybe new insights nobody has ever seen before. My job, I feel, is to make it come to life and make it real. Make it make sense. Because you don't need to add too much to the Word of God for it to have its way. So that's what we do. So there's a lot of scripture. There's a lot of, we're going to have a lot of Hebrew lessons today. So I hope you guys are excited about Hebrew lessons. But I am, okay, I have to stop here. I always say, I'm excited for this message. Last service, I said, okay, people say I say excited too much, and it starts to lose its impact. I get that. So I actually put it out. Give me some suggestions for new superlatives, new things to say instead of that. So I'll throw out that same invitation. If you got different superlatives, so last Last uh, message, they put pumped and jazzed. I'm pumped, I'm jazzed, I'm psyched. I'm going to use them all up. Um, Giddy and gulping was one of the more creative ones. I am, but I get it. I'm giddy and I'm gulping over this message that God gave me. Now, I, I can be excited because I really feel like God gave me this message. And most messages, if not really, honestly, all of them, I feel like I do my diligence and study of the word, and then God reveals something, the direction that he wants to go. And this one is no different, and and I'm going to make that clear as we go along. But I'm giddy and gulping, so let's get to it. Let's get to it. Hey, another thing. By the way, Pastor Gabe talked about the Led by the Spirit School and the, the Learning to Perceive and Hear workshop. I just want to really, really encourage you to prayerfully consider signing up for that class, especially if you're somebody who maybe is on the fence and a little skeptical, and I'm not sure how I believe about that. I'm not sure what I think about that whole being led by the Spirit and prophecy and being able to hear. It's a two-day workshop. You can't do it all in a message. She did a great message last weekend, but you can't cover it all in one message. It's a really great way to see really how that moves. And better than that, see for yourself how it works in your life. And there's no better way to solidify what the Lord's doing than to see it in action in your life. So I want to encourage that. If you're online, you can go to ledbythespiritschool.org. That's the best way to sign up if you're online. If you're here in-house, we have flyers and we have cards up at the table, the info table, with all the information that you're going to need. So be sure that you check that out. All right, so now let's get into the message here. Last time, you know, we're in the we're in their book of Job. Again, to catch you up if you haven't been here for a while or maybe not at all, we're in the book of Job. The book of Job is, most people think it's about patience and suffering and perseverance and blah. 
However you want to look at it, it's rarely seen as one that's exciting. Yay, I want to learn about Job. Or better yet, I want to be just like Job. Very few people want to do that just based on our surface understanding of Job. But the more you learn about it and the more you hear what he goes through and how he perseveres through this, the more I think that we can take away and apply to our daily lives here today. We started this series before all this COVID stuff hit, and, or at least planned it before, and there could be no better series than to understand how to persevere in the face of trials. Job, little background, I won't go into it in depth, but Job was a, was a good man, an upright man. Even God in the opening chapters declares him to be blameless. That's why there's the, the name of the series. And not that he's completely sinless. Nobody is. No human being is, but he's blameless. And what that means is that when he made a mistake, he repented of it. He got up every day and he offered sacrifices to the Lord and he did the things that he was supposed to do to fulfill his part of his relationship with the Lord, which at that time, that's all they knew. They didn't have the depth of understanding that we have right now, but he did everything he had to do and yet still terrible calamity fell on him, lost all of his children, lost all of his servants, his livelihood, his home, his health was attacked, boils and terrible physical ailments that came on him. And yet, although he wavers, he has his good days and his bad days, as you can tell, but he stays, stays solid. He stays solid with his understanding of God and who God is and his faith in God that God will be the one ultimately to redeem him, despite what his friends say. Now, this is where we get this this tension here, his friends, Bildad Zophar and Eliphaz, they travel from all their business associates more than close friends, but they know him pretty well. They travel in from all over the, the, the region at that time, and they come in, they get there, and their goal is to just comfort him. But when they get there, they, their theology, what they know of God, what they expect how God works, what they expect to see as far as input, output. And what that is, is if you do bad, you will receive bad from God. If you do good, you'll receive good from God. And that really is about as deep as their theology goes. And that's not entirely wrong, but it doesn't even begin to touch the depth of what's going on here with Job. But when they get there, and they're trying to take what's happening to Job, who, as far as they knew, he was a good guy. He says he's a good guy. But how do they reconcile what's happening to him with their theology? So in order to fit what's happening to him into their theology, they have to somehow prove that he is actually a wicked, evil person. They have to prove that. Otherwise, they got to look a little closer at their theology, and they don't want to do that. We're all resistant to that. We get our theology, and we want that's where we start from. And it sometimes takes a bulldozer to push us off of that mountain that we've decided that we're going to die on. And we need to look deeper. So that's where we are. Last time we checked in on Job, again, two weeks ago, his friend, Job's friend, Zophar, had just finished basically haranguing Job with this, this really helpful nugget that he leaves him with. Job 20, verse 29 says, This is a wicked person's portion from God, the inheritance decreed to him by God. Okay, and that basically, that is, 
in a nutshell, encapsulates this theology that his friends have. There's no room for redemption, no room for the idea of grace. It's simply called, it's called retribution theology. And what it means is do bad, get bad. Do good, get good. It's just that simple. It's all they had at this time. Then Job hears that, and he replies back to this pearl of wisdom and asks this question. He essentially just says, okay, explain to me then. If what you say is true, explain to me then how we can all look around and see evil people prospering. We can see people who, in our minds, for as far as we know, they are downright evil people, and yet they get rich, they live long lives, they seem to be happy, they do okay, they have honorable deaths, they, they continue their bloodline. Everything that you would say God would bless somebody with, they seem to have that, and yet they're evil. So tell me how that works. And what he, the way he asks it in Scripture is Job 21.7. Why do the wicked still live? grow old, and also become very powerful. He's just asking him that question. Okay, if what you say is true, explain this. So then, given that and the fact that they can't reconcile that, they basically pretend like they never heard that question, <laughs> he just dismisses their attempt at being helpful altogether. And he says this, Job twenty-one thirty-four. so how dare you give me empty comfort? For your answers remain nothing but falsehood. You said, you know, I, I appreciate that you're trying, but why are you doing this? You're not helping. So that's kind of setting the stage for everything. And now we go into this third round. Remember, it's been kind of a, like a back and forth. His three guys, his three friends, have basically just been taking their turn up to the plate to swing the bat at Job's head. And, and then when one guy's done, Job responds, and the next guy comes up. And you would be tempted to think, okay, this is just more of the cycle. It just seems to be like one after the other. But here's what we need to understand. Every single word that's in Scripture is there for a reason. It's there because God wants to teach you something, either about himself, about his character, about his son Jesus, about who you are, about how to live in this world. Every word is there for a reason. So we look at this, and instead of just dismissing this, this more back and forth as, oh, it is more the same, we have to look deeper. What is there that's in this that is going to help us navigate life and understand why this is even in here? So, again, this is kind of the third round of the friends going through. Now, it's actually the last time that we're going to hear from Eliphaz. Eliphaz is kind of the ringleader. He's sort of the head of of these guys, the most learned, the most full of wisdom, supposedly. And it's the last time we're going to hear from him. We won't hear from Zophar anymore at all. That was last time. And Bildad, the third friend, we'll hear from him one more time in a couple chapters, but it's just a, just a paragraph. So this is where it really gets good, okay, after we come back after Easter. That's when it really gets good. Today's great. It gets greater then. I need a superlative for that. All right, so let's get into it. Job 22, verse 1, then, then Eliphaz the Temanite responded. Okay, so this is all his response to what Job had said. And he's getting, he's getting a little bit more agitated, you can kind of tell, a little bit more sarcastic. Job 22, verses 2 and 3, says, Can a strong man be of use to God, or a wise one be useful to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or gain if you make your ways blameless? This kind of shows us a snapshot of where Eliphaz and his 
theology is. It's, it's a fundamental, but a very common, even today, misunderstanding of God and his character. And essentially what he's saying here is, why would God care if you did bad or good? Either way, he'll either punish you or he'll reward you, but it makes no difference to him. What difference does it make to God? And that's kind of where Eliphaz is. If you do the right things and fly under the radar, hopefully you'll make it to the end. Not thinking really God has any sort of vested interest in all this. Now, another thing to see about this, if you could throw that back up there really quick, if you could. Job 22, 2 and 3. We know that there are several names all throughout Scripture, names for God. We see all kinds of different words used to describe God, names for God, and it's all throughout. We'll get into that a little bit more in the future, but I want to show you this really quick. First of all, you can see in line two, or verse two, can a man be of use to God? If we translate that word back into the original Hebrew, it's just El, E-L. It just means God. It doesn't really describe an aspect, it's just God. And then down here uh, in verse three, where it says, is it any pleasure to the Almighty? Almighty. Pay attention to that word and see how many times, and I'll, I'll go back and I'll circle around, we'll hit that again. But that's two different words used to describe God, and it's intentional. It's not accidental, and we'll see where that enters in here. All right, so let's, let's go on to the next one. Job 22.4. Now, this is where Eliphaz gets sarcastic, okay? Is it because of your reverence that he punishes you, that he enters into judgment against you? Saying, oh, it's because you're so holy and so good and blameless that God's punishing you, right? My bad. I get it. It's just pure sarcasm from his friend. Job 22.5, is your wickedness not abundant and is there no end to your guilty deeds? In other words, he's just saying, again, we all know what you've done. We all know what you've done, so let's just get it out there, except that he doesn't know. He hurls all these accusations with no basis for them. And in fact, he goes on now to list out basically just this list of, of sins that Job has committed, but he's got zero proof. We do that so much in our culture today, and it's nothing new. It's always been that way. You see the fruits of someone's life, or you see something happen, or maybe take something they said in isolation, and all of a sudden ascribe all these other sins to them. Well, these guys have, obviously, because we know from the opening few chapters that Job has not done any of these things, that doesn't stop them from throwing these accusations. Listen to these as I go through. See if any of them ring true based on what you have heard and what you know about Job. I'll read some, and we'll put some on screen. Job 22, 6, 7. For you have seized pledges from your brothers without cause and stripped people naked. You have given the weary no water to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The word seized pledges basically translates to you kept security deposit. What that means. Remember, Job lived, Job made a really good living and was very successful being a trader, kind of at a, at a crossroads of trading routes. And he would rent out camels to travelers. He was a way station. People would come through. He would give them food and water so that they could travel on through to Egypt or wherever they were headed. And he made a really good living at that. But what they're saying is that when you would come through, people would either rent camels from you or rent oxen or donkeys and do something, you would take a security deposit, just like we would do now, except that he would keep it. At least that's the accusation. That's not what happened, but that's what they're accusing him of. 
Now, Job 22, 8, but the earth belongs to the powerful man and the one who is honorable dwells on it. Interesting to look at really quickly here. If you're following along in your, in your Bible, previous to this, it's all been second person or first person where he said, you have done this. You have done this. You have done this. Right here is a little section, Job 22, 8, that's all in the third person. And that's caused a lot of scholars actually to throw that aside and say, it didn't belong there. Somebody added that in. It's, it's a different tense. It just kind of seems out of place until you look at it a little more carefully. If you look at it, verse 8 belongs to the powerful man. Who is this powerful man? A lot of translations or commentaries, if you read them, will just say the powerful man is, is Job's rich. He's rich. He's powerful. But I think it goes deeper than that. If we look at that word, powerful, powerful, translates in the Hebrew as zeroah. And zeroah means strength or arm, but more accurately means strong arm, like the strong arm, not, not Frank Azar, but the strong, sorry. But it literally means a strong arm. I didn't say that last. But in a lot of scriptures, we'll see, a lot of scriptures, we'll see that, that God, Yahweh, his arm is an instrument of deliverance um, or even judgment. We see that in Deuteronomy 5.15. Let me read you this chunk. It, it describes that. And you'll be familiar with this scripture. Most of us will be. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That outstretched arm of God delivering them is exactly that Zoroah, the same thing, this powerful man that they're talking about right here. So I believe that it does belong there. And I believe that even backs up more the fact that Eliphaz here has a really strong grasp on the almighty God, on the almighty character aspect of God. Again, we're going to look at that a little bit closer uh, when we get to the end. Now, Eliphaz, he's got one last insult or stone to hurl at Job. It's Job 22.9. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of orphans has been crushed. Now we find out later, Jesus teaches much of the New Testament, even talks about ministry to widows and orphans as being pure religion. That's something that we're, that we're told that, that we should do, and that is pure religion. But think about in Job's time. Job didn't have that kind of instruction. In fact, all Job had was he didn't have any formal laws about how to interact with his fellow man. What he had was the sacrificial system. He had, you get up, you offer a burnt offering for this sin, a different kind of offering for that sin. And it was all about offerings and things that you had to do to absolve yourself or beg forgiveness from God. There was no instruction. The instruction that came as far as how to live with each other, that wouldn't come until much later to Moses at Mount Sinai. So Job didn't have that, except that he did have instinctively, and we all pretty much, whether you're a believer or not, we all have this moral code kind of ingrained in us, right? No matter who you talk to and no matter where they are on the spectrum of things, we all have sort of this innate idea of what's right and wrong. We see that, and Paul puts it into, into really good form here. Romans 2, 14, 15, he says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law into themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, 
their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternately accusing else defending them. So even Gentiles, and when he meant Gentiles there, that was non-believers what he was talking about. Everybody has this innate. And Job and his buddies are no different. They have that innate, but they didn't have the written law. Even then, though, Job doesn't fail in that. And we'll see when we get to the end, chapter 31, Job actually goes back and refutes all of those charges. As we know, because we saw what happened behind the scenes at the beginning, that those are all false. Now, assuming that what Eliphaz had been accusing him of is true, the natural result of Job's crimes against humanity, right, would be, would be this. Job 22, verses 10 to 11. Therefore, traps surround you, and sudden dread terrifies you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. He's basically talking about Job being a hypocrite. These bad things are happening because... You're a hypocrite. And he goes on even to say that Job must believe that God can't see what he's doing. And he says that in this, Job 22, 12, and 13. Is God not in the height of heaven? Look also at the highest stars, how high they are. But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the thick darkness? He's basically saying that Job is insinuating God is so far away, so high, he can't possibly know what we're doing down here. That actually feeds into this idea as far as they knew of the character of God. Distant, only interested in you if it somehow benefited him or just by chance. Not an intimate part of your life, but Job knew that was not the case. But here he's being called a hypocrite. And a hypocrite, we, we know there's religious hypocrites. There's all kinds of different hypocrites. In this scenario here, it's a person who pretends to have moral or religious convictions that they don't live out. They pretend they have them, but in reality, they don't live it out. In fact, hypocrite is the Greek word for actor. Well, how many people know that? The, the Greek word for actor is hypocrite, and that's exactly what it is. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, actually describes what that looks like in a, in a context of, of knowing God. Isaiah 29, 13, he says, The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules. They have been taught. Okay, that's, that's Isaiah's definition of what a hypocrite is. They're accusing Job of that, but we know that is definitely not who Job is. But that doesn't stop Eliphaz from just continuing forging ahead. Job 22, 15, 16. Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked people have walked, who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river? This is an interesting one. Leave that up there for just a second here. He's talking about the ancient path. First of all, the wicked. Here again, he's bundling Job in with the wicked. He doesn't see anything that proves he's wicked. He just knows he has to be. But when they're talking about here, who are snatched away before their time, many scholars, in fact, most scholars, it's impossible to really do an accurate timeline on the things that we see in Genesis, most of them especially creation and, and the flood event and things like this, you can approximate and kind of come to some sort of, <coughs> excuse me, some sort of conclusions. <clears throat> but most scholars agree that the flood event, Noah's flood, happened about 500 to maybe 1,000 years before Job. Okay, so that would have been relatively, think about that, relatively fresh 
in their minds, you know, generations ago, but still enough to where they'd probably have some, some firsthand accounts of how things happened after that. So here they are, they're referencing that, that flood event and that the wicked were snatched away. We know this, because if we look even further, that word snatched in the Hebrew is komat, and komat literally means to seize, wipe out, or destroy. So you put that together, and he is literally talking about the Noah flood event right here. And he's saying, God wiped out those people because they were wicked, and he must have missed you because you should, you should be in that group. Job twenty two seventeen. they said to God, go away from us, and what can the Almighty do to them? There's that word Almighty again. I don't know about you, but even saying those words, I feel a little funny. Go away from me, God. What can you do to me? That, even then, they're putting that, only the wicked would say that. Now, we switch just a little bit here, and this is my favorite part of this chapter. We switch and we kind of see why Eliphaz and Job were such good friends, why they were friends at all, really, to begin with, because we see kind of this, this heart now come out in Eliphaz that kind of he hasn't shown up until now. He wants to save Job. He really, he wants Job to come around to his opinion, but more than that, he just wants to save Job. And he preaches this great little mini-sermon on, on salvation and reconciliation. So let's look at this. Job 22, 21, 22. Be reconciled with him and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and put his words in your heart. This is unlike anything that Eliphaz has been saying up to this point. By the way, that word instruction is the Hebrew word Torah. Okay? And that's actually the first time in all of Scripture that that word Torah is used for instruction. Obviously, we see that much, much more later when Moses received that kind of instruction on Sinai. But here, it's the same idea, instruction straight from God's mouth. Job 22, verses 23 to 25. If you return to the Almighty, again, the word Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove injustice far from your tent, and put your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Then the Almighty will be your gold and abundant silver to you. He's saying, if you just throw away all of your ill-gotten gains, all of your wealth, everything that you thought you had, which by now is mostly gone anyway, then God will provide. That's the point he's getting to there. And he uses the word Almighty to illustrate that. We're going to go even more in depth here in just a minute, so bear with me. A little fun fact on that right there, and I tell you this, a lot of times I do these little segues, and I do it so that you know Scripture is real, so that you know the Bible is real. It's, it talks about real places and real things and things that can be backed up in history. It's not just a bunch of guys got together and wrote a fairy tale, and we're trying to make it real somehow. So thousands of years ago, remember Job, Job was probably 4,000 years ago, and he talks about this place called Ophir. And Ophir is cool. Ophir was a region, when he talks about the gold of Ophir, that's a region that was really famous, even back then, for gold mining. Gold came from, from Ophir, and that's all throughout Scripture. We see little references to Ophir here and there, but specifically in Kings. If you read, you can read 1 Kings 10 on your own if you want the whole story. But Solomon, King Solomon, 
got his gold shipments and got all of his gold, okay? He was well known for being wealthy. And he got his gold from Ophir. 1 Kings 10, 14 says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. I want to talk about that really quickly here. How much is a talent? First of all, 666, that's, there's no significance to that. It's just a number. But a talent, how much is a talent? A talent is 75 pounds. 75 pounds times 666 is almost 50,000 pounds of gold. 50,000 pounds of gold in one year would come to him. Now, if we break that out into ounces, I did the math for you. Break that into, uh, into ounces, and today's selling price of gold is $1,741 an ounce, or at least yesterday's it was. That comes to, in one year, $1,391,407,200 in today's value. That's a lot of money that would come in. Over the lifetime of Solomon, it was $2.3 trillion worth of gold that came out of this region of Ophir. We actually, in 1 Kings 10.22, a little later in the story, the king had the ships of Tarshish at sea with Hiram's ships. Hiram was a Phoenician ruler, and so there was so much gold coming in, he had to borrow ships from other people and partner up so that he could get it in. And they came in carrying gold and silver, ivory, monkeys, and peacocks. All kinds of crazy wealth coming. Now, before you ask, there's no agreed-upon location from where Ophir is. Ophir is the subject of searching. Some people say it's west coast of Africa. Some say it's east coast of, of uh, or west coast of Arabia or east coast of Africa. It can be all over. Some people even say it's in the Philippines. People have been searching forever for where Ophir is. In fact, any children of the 80s here remember the movie King Solomon's Mines? Remember that? Here, maybe this poster. <laughs> that is an accurate representation of the historical... No, it's not. It's not at all. But you know what I find interesting about this? You can take that down now. What I find interesting about that, and the reason I do these segues, again, is to make it real. Even non-Christians are searching for this mythical place of Ophir that Solomon got all his gold. I just find it interesting that people who would know, they would give God no place in their lives... And yet, they'll latch on to things like that. And, and for some reason, there's truth in that to them. But they've been searching forever. So but just want to make that real. When, when, when they mention Ophir, it's not just a random place. This is some place that, that has been throughout history a source of this gold. Now, Eliphaz, okay, enough of that. Eliphaz goes on now, and he finishes kind of this message of reconciliation. It's an amazing message. Job 22, 26 through 28, I'll read that to you. For then... Meaning then if you, if you throw away everything you've counted on, throw away your gold and silver, then you will take pleasure in the Almighty. There's the Almighty again. And lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will also decide something and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. That, by the way, in a nutshell, is exactly what Job has been mourning is that loss of his direct relationship with God. He's had that ability to perceive and hear God in his life, and it suddenly went silent. And so he mourns his children. He mourns his health and his livelihood and all those things, his reputation, all that. But more than that, he just mourns deeply the, the fellowship and the closeness with God that he used to have. 
And so when Eliphaz says that, he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I want back. Eliphaz now goes on and he, he concludes this up and he says something that's really kind of prophetic, I think. Job 22, 29 and 30. You have that on screen. When they have brought you low, you will speak with confidence and he will save the humble person. He will rescue one who is not innocent and he will be rescued due to the cleanness of your hands. Now that's actually opposite of what Eliphaz has been saying all along, whereas the the guilty will be punished. Here he's saying that God the Almighty will rescue the one who is not innocent. Not innocent because you are clean. That's such a shadow of a coming of Christ and the reconciliation and the atonement of Christ. But that's the reason I say it's prophetic is because at the end, spoiler alert, Job ends up being declared righteous again by God and he prays for his friends. The only reason God spares his friends at all is because Job prays for them. Eliphaz would have had, this is one of those things, Eliphaz would have had no reason to know that and it's so out of character for him. And yet he speaks those words. I wonder if he had any idea the depth of what he was saying. So that's it for the scripture in this chapter. And like I said at the beginning, we have to kind of look at it and figure out What are we supposed to take away? What are we supposed to know that makes this special, that makes this session be in there? So let's talk about it. What can we learn here that's unique and not just a repeat? If you're paying attention, and I helped you, you'll see that the word almighty was used a lot. Use the word almighty for for the character of God. In fact, let's talk about the almighty God. Eliphaz uses the word almighty at least five times, some translations have it different, to describe God. In fact, the book of Job uses that word almighty more than any other book in all of biblical canon. Uses the word almighty. Let's talk about why that is. Why does it matter? The various names of God, and God goes by many different names, not just God. Remember, God is L E L. But it's translated many different ways, and he goes by many different names. Let me give you an earthly example just to kind of help you get your mind around it. Depending on who's talking to me, I'm either pastor or dad or husband or brother or son, but I'm Bob's my name. But that doesn't tell the aspect of the character that we're discussing So when you're reading scripture and you see God addressed a certain way, that's a hint. It's a clue that we're supposed to look at to help us understand the aspect of God that's being focused on here in this this section, that particular section. And so the word almighty gives us that. Now, who who can throw out a, a different name of God other than El or God? Yahweh. Very good. Another one? Adonai? Elohim. El Shaddai. Very good. Those are all, and in fact, El Shaddai is almighty. That's what we're going to talk about here a little bit more in depth. Many, many of them, and, and you guys, you, got, you did great on getting some of this. So Adonai literally means Lord Master. Yahweh means Lord Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah Nisi means the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Elohim, just another word for God. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. 
different aspects of his character. And so when we see those different names, such as, in this case, El Shaddai. El Shaddai is almighty. It tells us the aspect that they're focusing on in that section that they're talking about here. Doesn't mean it's not the same person. By the way, if you address El Shaddai as Yahweh, he's not going to go, I'm going to wait until you call me by the right name. It's all aspects of the same God. But let's do a little study and see what that is. Now, of course, El Shaddai is what we're going to talk about here. Now, Job doesn't use El. He doesn't use El. He uses that to describe God alone, but he doesn't use the term El Shaddai. Subject for a whole nother, a whole nother study. But basically, their idea of who God was didn't have the depth that we have now. They just thought of God as one kind of a of an omnipresent and yet not present, somewhere where they couldn't reach him kind of a God. So let's do a little study on that word almighty and see what God's trying to show us here. First of all, the word almighty, again, is Hebrew. I think we'll put them up here on the, on the screen so it makes it a little bit easier. The word almighty is Shaddai. It's actually pronounced Shaddai, but everybody says Shaddai, and I'll, I'll probably continue to do that. The definition, though, is mountain of strength. A mountain of strength might seem a little, little odd until you look a little bit deeper and see that the part of speech is a noun. Not only a noun, but a masculine noun. Okay, So it's talking about God being that mountain of strength. Now let's go even deeper. That word is derived from the Hebrew word shadad. Shadad, and we have that one here too as well. Shadad okay, means to deal violently with or to devastate. Definitely not what you would necessarily think of. You break that down even further into the word shad, okay, the root there, shad, another Hebrew word, but it literally means breasts, and the usage is is to nourish and satisfy. Okay, so to nourish and satisfy, and then the second half of that word is die, which means to shed forth or pour out. So you have this mountain of strength who can deal violently with or devastate, but also nourish and satisfy and to pour all that out. When you put it together, and I know it can be difficult to put it all together, but what it really means is the all-sufficient God, the all-sufficient one, your giver of life, your provider, your giver of discipline when necessary. What it means is your all-powerful everything, your everything. And that's what Eliphaz is talking about here. And that's why I believe that that word is used. It's revealing God's character as their everything. They had no idea of the intimacy that God would ultimately want with them and that would be possible through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. They didn't have that. But it's exactly what Job means. Later on, he says, Job 33, 4, he says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. That's exactly what he's talking about here. And I think in today's culture, we tend to either downplay or just completely forget about that aspect of God. I think it's much more friendly, warm and fuzzy to talk about God the redeemer, God the provider, a loving God, to talk about all those we call them warm and fuzzy aspects of God, it's much more friendly. You can talk to just about anybody about God and they'll consider 
God is love, which is true. It's all true. God is love. God wants everybody to be in heaven. God is good. God is faithful. God wants to bless you. All those things are so easy to accept. We all want to accept that there's a creator up there who wants to pour these things out, right? We all do. But there's another aspect of who God is, that if we don't understand it and we don't acknowledge it, we are diminishing who God is in our life. And so to think about a God who is all-powerful and sovereign, who is both provider and disciplinarian, is something we don't talk about a lot. But that's why it's in here. And God gave me, I was praying about this before, and I want to read this word for word because I feel like this is what he gave me. And it's just a description. An almighty God who can move mountains, build up and crumble empires, provide everything you will ever need, and at the same time, choose to take it away for reasons that you may never know, is exactly the aspect of who God is that Eliphaz was speaking about when he used the word almighty to describe God. See, an almighty God does not need to explain to us why he does things. If we feel the need to understand and have it explained to us, we're diminishing that character of God. And we're expecting that the King of kings, the creator of the heavens and earth, the almighty powerful God is going to explain to us why he does things. That's where faith comes in, church. We have to understand that God is good. God is loving. And filter that with the fact that God will discipline us or correct us or rebuke us when necessary. It is the fullness of God's character that if we only grasp one piece of it, our idea of who God is is going to be skewed. And we're going to live our lives like that. Job twenty two twenty six. Remember, and I, I read it before, but Eliphaz is saying, for then you will take pleasure in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. That idea, then, That's an understanding of who the Almighty is. You will be able to take pleasure in him. That doesn't mean life's going to be easy. doesn't mean anything goes. All roads lead to heaven. God has not and will never be all roads lead to heaven. There is one road that leads to heaven, and that gate is narrow. And it goes through Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that. What Job had hoped for and somehow in his spirit just knew was that reconciliation, redemption, salvation, and everlasting life for mankind was coming to the earth soon in the form of man. And that man was named Jesus, and Job knew that. He didn't know him by the name Jesus. He called him his redeemer a couple chapters ago. But Job knew that, and he had to wait. And that's why, that's why Job is such a hero of the Bible, because that wasn't there at that time. He didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do, where we can just ask him. You want to know whether to go right or left? You want to know to make a decision? Ask God. The sovereign creator, almighty, all-powerful God will talk to you if you just ask him. That is a blessing and a privilege that we have. Like Pastor Gabe said, why would you have a smartphone and only make outgoing calls on it when it can do so much more? God wants so much more than that for you. Remember in John 16, 33, this is the NIV version because I just like the way it reads. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you have, may have peace. 
In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So next week, when we kick off our series on Easter, Light from Darkness, we're going to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But more than that, we are going to celebrate the fact that the old covenant is gone, has been rewritten with the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And through that, we have redemption. We have fellowship with the Father. We have eternal life. But eternal life in heaven is nothing if we don't use it to change our lives today. When you give your life to Christ, your eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts that day. Are we living our lives like we are living that eternal life gifted to us by Jesus? I pray that we are. But only, the only way to understand that is the fullness of the aspects of who God is, the understanding of the Almighty God. And that's why we study chapters like this. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord God, that you are almighty. You are our everything, our provider, our redeemer. You are the creator of the heavens and earth and everything that ever was. And yet, if we ask you, you will give us every step that we need. You will guide our every step. We never have to go a day or a moment without hearing your voice. And thank you, Lord, that we are not like Job, where your voice can just go silent. Through Jesus on the cross, we have access to the Holy Spirit and thereby fellowship with you. So, Father, we praise you for that. We praise you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for who he is. We thank you that despite our insignificant status on this earth, that you lift us up and we are special to you. Lord, we thank you for your heart for us, our everything, and our almighty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, we're gonna take communion together now. So if you're at home, grab your communion supplies, whatever you have. If you're here in-house, we have them at the table in the back, just little single-serve cups. Grab, grab one of those, or two or three, or however many you need. Let's take communion together. I was praying about communion. Jackie Jacobson sang communion last week. It was beautiful. If you saw that, I loved that. But it also incited me to raise my game a little bit on communion. And so I was praying this morning about what God would want me to say, not just wrote, this is what we say and this is what we do, but what would you have me say, Lord? And, and I want to read it because I feel this is in my spirit what I wanted to say to you. Jesus Christ came to live among us in the flesh. Our Emmanuel, with the nature of God contained in the fallen flesh of man to experience what we experience here on earth. And he came not just to offer us eternal life, but to reconcile us to the almighty God. And on his broken body, take the body. On his broken body, the wrath of a just and righteous God was poured out for you. Take the body. Through the blood of Jesus, whatever you have that represents the blood of Christ, we are made clean, 
holy, and set apart as his. We belong to him. By partaking in the blood of Christ, we never have to fear the wrath of God, but can instead, as Eliphaz said, delight in the presence of the Almighty. If you accept that, take the blood. Lord, we thank you and we praise you this day and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.